Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Gary. And I'm Johanna. And we are thrilled to have the co-chair and executive director of the recently established White House Gender Policy Council, Jennifer Klein, here with us today. This being our second to last episode of our first season at Pod is a Woman, we want to end back where we started with a conversation about equity and equality. And what a ride the past couple of months have been. And I'm so glad to be on this journey with you ladies and also to have Jennifer joining us. And this being the episode right before Mother's Day, it would only be in keeping that I note that my children are here with me today. My preschooler had a COVID exposure and my nanny is out. So for our listeners, you may hear the pitter-patter of little feet in the background. Well, some of us have definitely been there. I'm sure that Jennifer will understand, but we are really excited to just get right in. Jennifer Klein is the co-chair and executive director of the recently established White House Gender Policy Council. Jennifer is the former chief strategy and policy officer for Time's Up, and previously she served as deputy in the Office of Global Women's Issues at the State Department. Welcome to Pod as a Woman, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. The Gender Policy Council is the first freestanding policy council focused on gender equity and equality within the executive office of the president. Can you tell us more about the council and with your work basically touching every issue, what are your initial priorities? Um, thanks so much for that great question. Uh, the council is really builds on um, the iterations that came before us. Most recently in the Obama White House, there was, of course, a White House Council on Women and Girls. Um, but you're right, there are things that are uh, different about this uh, council and different about this version. I would say first and foremost, as you already noted, it is a separate office, um, not within a policy council, not within the Office of Public Engagement, but as a standalone council. And that is in recognition of a couple of things. First and foremost, we do outreach, but we also do policy, and that's why we're called the Gender Policy Council. And second of all, we span both global and domestic issues. Um, so we are working on, to take um, an example of one of our priorities, we're working on economic security and um, women's labor force participation and the connection between that and what we've all just lived through with COVID and caregiving. And that is one of our highest priorities. But of course, that's an issue that crosses borders, which is relevant to women literally all over the world, where you know women have lost jobs in greater numbers um, than men, particularly women of color during COVID. Um, women bear more of the, the responsibility for caregiving literally everywhere in the world, um, and that has become even um, magnified and exacerbated during COVID. So I would say to um, answer both questions at once, in terms of you know, what differentiates us, but also what we're focused on, that's just one example. Another example of our highest priorities, I actually give two more examples of our, of our priorities, but as you well note, every issue is a women's issue. Every issue raises, raises issues of gender equity and gender equality. But just to take two other examples, we also spend a lot of time working on gender-based violence because again, that's an issue that crosses borders and happens in so many places. So just to take a few examples of what we've focused on doing in the first 100 days, 
One is to work on the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, which, as you probably know, um, now President Biden authored literally 27 years ago when he was senator and through his time as senator and also vice president and now as president, it's been a really high priority for him. That bill needs to be reauthorized and we're working on a bipartisan basis to, to do that this this spring. Second of all, you know, early on in the administration, the president appointed a commission at the Department of Defense to work on sexual assault in the military. And then third of all, just to take an example, a, a yet another example of how um, we're trying to address sexual assault and harassment wherever it occurs, the day actually, March 8th, International Women's Day, when the council was launched, um, the president also signed an executive order to ask the Secretary of Education to look at Title IX so that the Department of Education could really look at whether the policies of the uh, under Title IX were ensuring that um, every student um, could receive an equitable education. That's just a few examples. I can I can share more. Well, it sounds like you are off to quite the start, and it's incredible just in the short amount of time what you have taken on. But I noticed with the council, and because we were all in the Obama White House, we had interactions with the council on women and girls. Why was it important to be more inclusive by using the term gender versus women and girls? Um, I think that the reason, and, and by the way, my advisor in thinking all of this through was the one and only Tina Chen, um, who, as you who as you noted earlier, was also my boss at Times Up, um, and I had the great privilege to work with her there. And so, as the campaign and the transition were underway, you know, she and I had a lot of long talks about that because you know, on the one hand, it's really important to recognize that women and girls face disadvantage again in the United States and everywhere around the world simply by being born a girl, but also that, you know, there are um, a lot of um, other forms of discrimination um, based on gender identity, um, based on sexual orientation, um, and of course, you know, to state the obvious, other intersections with race, ethnicity, immigration status, and, you know, uh, indigenous um, people face particular forms of discrimination. And so, um, by naming the council the Gender Policy Council, um, we wanted to name that um, and say, um, really signal um, and live a, um, a very inclusive mission. And so for this council, what does equality look like? What does it mean? Well, one thing to note is that we work, it, it's literally written into the um, into the executive order that created us. We work on equity and equality. And the reason for that is what equality looks like is that everybody has an equal opportunity. But it, what equity looks like is a recognition that that sometimes requires um, different treatment for different types of people um, based on identity, um, based on, on your history, your previous experience, based on demography. Um, and so that's the very explicit or the reason for the very explicit naming of both equality and equity. Going back to gender-based violence for a moment, this affects one in three women in their lifetime. And the council actually includes a senior advisor focused on gender-based violence. Can you share more about the specific role you see this person taking in policy making administration-wide? 
Yeah, I mean, she is already working on um, many of the things that we that I just talked about, whether that's the military, whether that's sexual assault on campus, whether that's VAWA and some of the other really important pieces of legislation that need to be either passed or authorized. I'd also note that um, as part of the American Rescue Plan, um, which was you know passed just a few months ago, um, there's $450 billion in there um, to support programs um, and policies to prevent and respond to gender-based violence, including a significant am amount of money for culturally sensitive programs so that the people who are most at risk are able to access services and are able to access health and other um, things that they need to actually be safe and, and be able to thrive. So um, her name is Rosie Hidalgo. She's a longstanding leader in the field. Um, and I will also say the thing that strikes me often about Rosie is how she is so empathetic. You know, while she is literally one of the leaders in this country, she's also able to um, interact with and talk to everybody, whether that's a member of Congress, whether that's a member of our staff, whether that's a survivor, um, or whether that's a, you know, a policy expert who's written a lot of papers about um, sexual assault, um, domestic violence, stalking, and harassment. That's great information. Jennifer, you might see that my children are popping up in the background. And I'm sort of loving that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, we are in the midst of not having childcare, and there was a COVID exposure at my daughter's school, so we are quarantining um, right now. One of the things that you just mentioned was in reference to the military, and we're seeing so many advancements for women in the military. Last week, we saw Vermont become the first state to allow women to enlist in combat roles in the National Guard. And under President Biden, he's promoted two women to the rank of four-star generals and placed them in combatant commander role. What does that signal for women looking to break down barriers, not only in the military, but across fields that have been traditionally closed off to women? I think that it is that again, you know, and you're um, having to contend right now with children at home while you are trying to work <laughs> is a perfect example of things that have just been magnified but have long existed, things that are now visible but that have long existed. And one of those things is exactly what you just said, which is that, you know, women need access to good jobs and to take on roles that they are perfectly capable of taking on. Um, and that's true in the military. It's also also true in you know every employment sector around this country, um, and so you know again another thing we are working hard on, and you know through the council um, and obviously throughout the White House and the entire administration are the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. And those are these are historic investments, not only in jobs and infrastructure, but in economic security and investing in kids and families. And all of those things ladder up to ensuring that people, all people, but in this case, women in particular, have access to the training they need, the education they need, and the support for their families they need to do the jobs that they are perfectly capable of doing. And as you know, have in some cases have historically been excluded from. Well, that's a great segue, Jennifer, because that is exactly what we wanted to talk about is the two ambitious plans that President Biden has just laid out. So the American Jobs Plan outlined infrastructure investments. What do the infrastructure investments that he's got on the table mean for women specifically? 
So, as I said, and as you are pointing out, this is really a once in a generation investment and it supports women and families in a number of ways. You know, by the way, some are obvious because it says woman and or it says gender and many are not obvious, but really everything in this plan, I actually uh, asked my staff at one point to um, think about writing fact sheets on the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan and how they affect women. And basically they were the whole plans almost. Um, um, but let me let me outline a few is, you know, first of all, fixing highways, rebuilding bridges, upgrading airports, and um, all of that creates good paying jobs. Um, and, you know, part of the investment is apprenticeship programs and worker training so that women as well as men can access those jobs. Delivering clean drinking water, um, a renewed electric grid and high speed broadband. Um, number three, modernizing our nation's schools and childcare facilities and building new supply in high need areas to make it easier for parents, especially mothers, um, to fully participate in the workforce. A fourth major investment in the American Jobs Plan is building the infrastructure of the care economy. So this creates jobs and raises wages and benefits for essential home care workers, which is one of the large and critical components of the caregiving workforce. And then the last thing I'd point out is um, an investment in creating good quality jobs with prevailing wages in safe and healthy workplaces. And as I said, that means investing in workforce development and new and different career pathways for more women and for more women of color in particular to allow them to have access to jobs that they have been historically excluded from. And that's everything from construction to STEM fields. Um, and then, of course, there's the families plan, which we can also um, talk about. And that works in conjunction with, you know, very in a very integral and connected way with, with the jobs plan to invest in kids, families and economic security for um, for our country and for our communities and our families. I mean, that has sort of three big components. One is education. So that's everything from providing universal access to high quality free pre-K for three and four year olds, all the way to the other side of the spectrum, which is making two years of community college free for Americans. Number two, as I mentioned, is sort of the economic security piece. And that's uh, a number of different ways to make sure that families have the support they need. So helping them pay for, for high quality child care for children under five, ensuring that no one under earning under 150% of state median income has to pay more than 7% of their income on high quality child care. Second is comprehensive paid family and medical leave so that people can really take the time they need to care for themselves or their loved ones or when they have a new baby. Nutrition assistance and school meals and summer meals for children and families and a $3 billion investment in maternal health. And then the last piece of the American Families Plan is tax credit. So that's everything from extending the child and dependent care tax credit uh, making it permanent, which helps people pay for child care for children under age 13, making the earned income tax credit, um, expanding it so that it can benefit 17 million low-wage workers, and then extending child tax credits, which, as you probably know, increased in the American Rescue Plan and extending those increases for another five years, um, which literally puts money in the pockets of families for their children. 
And then last, um, lowering healthcare costs by making the American Rescue Plan's health insurance premiums reductions permanent, which is literally a $50 per person per month savings. often hear this when people will say, well, my mom worked and my, my mom worked every day taking care of us. And I feel like, you know, I am forever indebted for the investment that she put in us as kids. How do we change the narrative and actually respect the work that women do in caring for children and families and loved ones? Is that a part of this? It sure is. And I feel like we may be on the cusp of changing the narrative. I mean, again, there's no silver lining. We've all been living through this, continued to live through COVID. But, you know, we are living this as we are sitting here on this podcast, which is that both of you are sitting next to being interrupted by children. Um, And so I think for the first time, maybe not for so many of us who have been doing this for so long, but for the first time, maybe there are other people who are seeing that women work, women have children, some women stay home and take care of their children. And that's the reality. And so we are talking about caregiving in this country in a different way. And we are talking about parenting in this country in a different way. Um, You know, I think one of the major things, and as I just said, I, I just ran through a lot of policies. The other thing that is uh, needs to change and policy is a part of it of this, but there's um, there's more to it than just good policy, which is norms have to change. But again, I think sort of what we've lived through this year, while nothing about it is an opportunity, um, it is a moment where we see what's been happening for for years, for generations, for decades, and and appreciate that you know. Taking care of your family, whether that's your child, your um, older parent, or a sick relative, is you know the most meaningful thing somebody can do. And we need to make sure that people have the support they need to do that in whatever way they can or want to. So the Trump administration actually hailed the fact that they expanded paid family leave benefits for government employees. And actually, Vanessa Ambrosini and a number of unnamed Trump administration officials complained after the administration ended that they didn't get their paid family leave. Do you think there's a chance we could get Republican support to expand access to paid family leave to all Americans? I do. Again, you know, I think these things which have been off the table for for too long in ways that really haven't ever made sense are sort of on the table. And, you know, I'm not um, I'm not blind to the um, to the difficulties that are ahead. This is going to be hard. Um, On the other hand, um, I do think, first of all, you are already seeing bipartisan support for paid family and medical leave and some of these other programs. Um, you're also seeing like vast public support in a way that is new and different by both actually by Republicans, um, Democrats and independents who, um, you know, support policies like paid family and medical leave, support policies like child care in really, um, you know, high, high numbers um, that I think it's difficult for politicians to ignore. This is what families need. This is what families want. Um, and I think it's it's past time. 
Well, and if if we do use reconciliation to pass the American jobs plan, the infrastructure part, what does that mean for the American families plan? Could, like, how can we pass both? I think, you know, the president has been quite clear that this is his proposal. He's putting it on the table and he is open to discussing it with um, with anyone, with Republicans, with Democrats, and that the only option that's not on the table is doing nothing. Um, I think, you know, there are people who are already um, trying to figure out whether the family's plan is going to be played against the jobs plan. I don't think it makes sense to think about these sort of as two um, bills that are moving as, you know, whole bills in the way that the American Rescue Plan did. I think what, you know, what you're going to see here is there's, first of all, these things are integrally related. It's really difficult to to separate um, support for families so that they can work for, from jobs. Again, that's what we've been living through, right? One of the major reasons that women have been leaving the workforce this um, during this year, during COVID in record numbers is because of caregiving responsibility. So on the one hand, they've been, you know, childcare providers and home health aides who've been named essential at the same time, they've had to, you know, many other women have had to leave the workforce because of their own caregiving needs. So I think it's a little bit of a false choice to pit these two things against each other. They they can't be pitted against each other because that's not the way things happen in real people's lives. Right. Well, and the World Bank before the pandemic estimated that it would take about 150 years to achieve gender parity in lifetime earned income, which could help generate $172 trillion in human capital wealth worldwide. Then the pandemic hit and world leaders were warning that there were declines in progress. Where do we stand? And is there a chance that this investment in America could help President Biden speed the route to equity and equality around the world? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, these investments are about supporting families, but these investments are about economic recovery. I mean, there's not, it's not an accident that when the president laid out his plan for economic relief and recovery to build back better, this is part of it, right? Because the care economy investments in the workforce, investments in women, investments in children and families are, you know, the investments that will get our economy back on track and also the, the global economy as well. And, you know, and that happens in so many different ways, a very immediate way, as we've just been talking about getting women back into the workforce, which, as you just said, has, you know, obvious effects to um, economic growth and development. And then also the investments we're going to make in kids, um, because we also know that those investments pay off. So all of these things, um, to quote my former former boss, Hillary Clinton, are not only the right thing to do, but they're the smart thing to do. And again, I think we are in this moment in time where there's a, an overwhelming amount of support for, um, for taking big, bold structural action. You've laid out so well how pervasive this issue is globally and in our economy. So I guess I want to know, what do you say to those people who believe gender equity is only a female issue? I think that, um, you know, again, to return to a, a theme that um, that we have talked about, well, first of all, you know, one of the things I didn't say when I talked about why we named the um, council, renamed the council a gender council is because it's about men and boys too. 
Um, right. These are issues that are core to the economy. These are core um, family issues. And that's not just about women. That's about men, um, too. And that's about boys. And um, and second of all, you know, if you look at, at families who are trying to figure things out at the moment, you know, again, that involves all parts of a family. So if there's a family where there's, a, you know, a dad and a mom, um, which, you know, by the way, is not all of our families. There's a lot of families that are two dads or one dad. And, um, and you know, these are policies that are, are not gendered and they're not gendered on purpose because, first of all, you know, we need to respond to the needs of all families, whatever form that family takes. And in fact, just to take a, a small example of that, um, the paid family and medical leave policy um, that the president just announced um, when somebody is taking caregiving leave, that leave can be taken for a chosen family. And again, that's you know a very intentional choice to ensure that we are supporting families in whatever form they take and that we are supporting men who are taking caregiving leave as well as women who are taking caregiving leave. When we talk about powerful messages, President Biden recently gave one to the trans youth of America. What impact does it have for them to be elevated on a national stage to have the president support them so publicly at the joint session address that he gave last week? And what still needs to be done to support trans youth, especially given um, the legislation that's being passed in states across the country that prohibit them from activities like participating in youth sports? Yeah, I think that, you know, the fact that you hear a president of the United States naming trans youth and naming his support for trans youth is is a huge um, it gives respect, it gives dignity and quite frankly, it gives protection because I really think that saying even using the words trans youth in that chamber of Congress before, you know, millions of Americans really says all you need to know about the president's view about human respect and human dignity. Um, and that, as you point out, is not all that is needed, but it goes a long way to um, to setting the stage for being able to create the policies and things that people actually need, um, whether that's access to sports or whether that's access to education or whether that's safety. I mean, you know, if you think about gender-based violence, so much of it is uh, is worse for, um, for trans people, including trans youth. So all of this is just a as I said, a, a way of, of signaling and living this, you know, this, his values. And, and that's a huge um, investment in people. Well, we're so grateful to have had you here with us today and at the helm of such an important policy council. And in closing, can you share with our listeners what success looks like for the council and for gender equity and equality at large? Well, I, I keep saying I, I worked at the Office of Global Women's Issues in the State Department during the Obama administration. And we used to say then, and I say the same thing about the council, which is that the true measure of success is that we don't need a council because these issues are truly ingrained into all of the work that we do and all of the thinking that we do. Um, so the true measure of success is that, you know, we don't need somebody like me reminding people every day um, about the inequity and discrimination and bias that still exists uh, for women and particularly for women of color. But until then, I'm really grateful and privileged to, to be in this role and to be working with this amazing team that I am working with on these issues. 
Thank you so much for being here with us today. Jennifer Klein, co-chair and executive director of the White House Gender Policy Council. Great. Thank you all so much. Well, I am really looking forward to the world that Jennifer and her team is working to create because I think at that moment where we have equality and where we have women and men valued, we're going to have a great future ahead of us. That's absolutely right. And just to hear the importance that the administration is placing on equity and equality, to your point, Johanna, continues to signal the importance that they place on people and humans and Americans across the country. So just really, I feel um, inspired by our talk. I think it says a lot about the Biden White House to have established this independent council. It'll be really exciting to see how their work rolls out over the next four years. Absolutely. And similar to that note, our POTUS this week actually go to two women, POTUSes, Lisa Monaco and Vanita Gupta are the second and third in command at the Department of Justice. I think a lot of people have been focused on Merrick Garland, but we are really thrilled that Lisa Monaco and Vanita Gupta are taking on so many imbalances of power. Any of the abuses of power, they are swiftly attacking across the U.S., and that benefits all of us. That is true. And as we talk about incredible women and have had so many incredible women join us on the show, our shout out of the week goes to Agnes Pei, who is an immigrant who escaped two civil wars in West Africa, traveling to Rhode Island as a single mother with two young sons. She worked multiple jobs to help put her sons through private school and ensure that they were well educated. And her hard work paid off last week when her son, Quiddy Pei, was drafted 21st overall in the first round of the NFL draft. That is awesome. And we have a very special second shout out this week, and that goes to all the mothers ahead of Mother's Day. We celebrate you every single day of the year, but especially this week. So happy Mother's Day. And next week is bittersweet. It is our last episode of season one of Pod is a Woman, but we have a very exciting guest joining us, civil rights activist and the CEO and founder of Rise, Amanda Nugent. As always, Pod as a Woman is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be well. Mm-hmm.